This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. The series now before us is Christian Fundamentals and we are still dealing with that, the vast subject, the being and the nature of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if you who are listening would care to switch off for a moment or two and join with us, we are going to read together the first epistle to Timothy, chapter 1 and chapter 6. The first and the sixth chapter of first epistle to Timothy. We shall come back to this first epistle to Timothy and its bearing upon our subject, the being and nature of God. But it needs some sort of preparatory study to see the point. And uh, the first feature that I want to ask you to consider is the expression used by John in his Gospel and repeated in his epistle that no man hath seen God at any time. Doesn't mean to say God is invisible, that no man has seen God, but no man hath seen God at any time. And of course, if the Apostle has repeated it in his epistle, it would be a very unwise thing to say, well, we don't want to read it over again, we better see what the context is. So the first passage is John 1st chapter and the 18th verse. Now if the subject before us were the Gospel according to John, I would like to go through these 18 verses and suggest to you that they contain in germ all that he expands afterwards in the whole of the Gospel. But that would take us too much of our time for the present study. But in the 18th verse, he comes to this point. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This is a, a verse that needs most careful examination. And there's one peculiar feature about it that I think I must leave with you. I suppose most of you here at some time or other have consulted the concordant version. Those who were engaged in it have put tremendous amount of work in collating and gathering together every possible information they can with regard to the state of the Greek text. We give them all credit for that. I differ from them profoundly over one or two things, but that doesn't mean to say I should not recognise where there is something that's commendable. And among other things, my understanding of the person of Christ is very, very opposite from theirs. I'm saying all this because I want you to know that if you used the concordant version, you would be obliged to read, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Now that's so extraordinary as to say, but surely, well, they were obliged to put it in. And if you went to the British and Foreign Bible Society to get a copy of John's Gospel in the Greek, that's the only edition you would now get. So do with it as you will, you've got a face. That is practically the accepted reading. God only begotten. If we're going to get our mind in, as it were, to encompass it, we've practically solved all the question of God invisible and God relative. Uh, but it's not so easy as all that. Well, that's the one. Now, shall we turn to the first epistle of John and see the way in which he introduces the same words again? We may or may not see why he does it, but at least we shall have attempted to allow him to speak for himself. 
in the um, in the fourth chapter, he says in verse 12, no man has seen God at any time. And if you look at the context, you say, well, what's it all about? He's telling us about God loving us. Oh, of course. He says in verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God. He says in verse 10, herein is love. That the Father sent the Son. No man has seen God at any time. What's it got to do with love? Well, you can't understand that God is love. Just like that. Somebody says to you, well, how do you know God is love? Well, you can't say, well, I've seen him and I've been in his presence. You haven't. How do you know that God loves anybody? Well, you say, in this the love of God is manifested. Oh, yes, friend, I see. That it's, it's, as, it's as invisible as God himself, isn't it? Till he does something. And the only way you can be sure that God is love is that he sent his son. That's the argument here. And he picks it up again later on in this same chapter. Verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, you see the point? Now you have seen your brother. How can he love God whom he hath not seen? And James comes along with another argument. He says, oh, it's all very well for you to say, I have faith. But he says, you show me your faith by your works and then I'll believe you. Because faith's invisible. Love's invisible. God's invisible. And we could go on with this. The mystery hid by God is unintelligible until it's manifested. So you see, it's all coming back again to this. That we are creatures of relativity. Now, if you ask me if I could expound to you the mathematics of Einstein, I wouldn't be able to understand a scrap of it. But I do know this, that I meet some people who are so pernickety about the what they call truth that they tell a lot of untruths in trying to be a little bit better than their fellows. Let me give you a crude illustration of what I mean. Supposing we are living on a globe. I say supposing because I wouldn't impose that upon anybody. I think we are. So at 12 o'clock in midday, the house in which I live is just exactly like that. So I would say to myself or anybody else, my dining room is on the first floor and above the dining room is my bedroom. Then at 12 o'clock at night, I'm upside down. So if I was one of these people who would always tell the truth and never tell a lie, I'd say, well, now I'm upside down. My dining room's on top and the bedroom's underneath. But if we lived like that, we couldn't make it in a tale of life at all. All the truth we deal with, friends, is relative to our own puny little limitations. And it makes one sad to hear somebody who's never seen God and doesn't know how to describe him telling you and me, God cannot do this and it's impossible for him to do that. How do we know? A little modesty may open doors to truth and the other attitude may slam them very tight. So it's all relative truth so far as we are concerned, related to our circumstances and the limitations of our understanding and therefore it's God coming down, God limiting himself, God using words that only have about a tenth of their value as they really have with him. Otherwise, we shall be overwhelmed with the magnificence and the impossibility of any way of interpreting it to ourselves and others. I feel that myself very, very acutely. 
Here am I standing in front of you, and my subject is the being and nature of God. Well, I haven't got the remotest idea about the being and the nature of God, except that he has condescended to tell me to look away from all these abstractions and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And our Saviour himself said to those who were with him, they said to him at last, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And he looked at them and he says, have I been so long time with you, and haven't you understood, he that seeth me, sees the Father? He never said to them, one day you'll see the Father. He never said that. And when the day comes for the Son to be subject to him, to put all things under him, it doesn't say the Father will be all in all. That's the common conception which has ruined much of our teaching. It says that God may be all in all. You see, the Father and the Son are relative terms. No man can be a father who hasn't a child. And God has adopted the same for he never calls himself the Father in the Old Testament. He becomes the Father predominantly in the New Testament the moment the angels said about the glory to God in the highest because at long last the Son had been born. Oh, I know this will sound very bad in the eyes of some people. Oh, no, in the ears of some people. Yes. Uh, but they may perhaps be led to ponder it a little bit. There's a tendency to sort of say, of course, we all know that the Father is God really, but uh, we make these little concessions. That isn't the teaching of Scripture. That isn't the teaching of Scripture. And we want to get it all square on what God has said. Well now let's uh, assure ourselves of one or two other passages along this line. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Very well known to us, but it must be included. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Yeah, when our subject is, who is the creator, we should have to give these pass this passage a bit more consideration. Uh, but you notice, he is the image of the invisible God. God himself is invisible. No man hath seen or can see. And Christ is the interpreter. Uh, when I was reading John 1.18, and it says, He hath declared him. The Greek word is, He hath given him an exegesis. And as I've said before, I think, if we were very highbrow and third program, you would come here for an exegesis of the scriptures, but you don't get it, you just get a simple everyday explanation. But that's what it means. Christ has given God an exegesis. And there's no explanation of God outside of Christ. You search all the libraries in the world and the wisdom of the world comes to naught and they cannot tell you one blessed thing as to the Father or as to God that does not find itself manifested walking on, on human feet years ago in this very world. God has shut us up to Christ and if we blink there we get a very crude conception of God altogether. But if we say, what is God like? And we get the answer from the scripture, God is Christ-like. We've got a sufficient answer to last until we stand in his presence. And when we do, we shall say, well, instead of it being changed, it's going to be more glorified and magnified than ever I dreamed. God is Christ-like. Otherwise, the thought of God 
without any restriction, without any limitation, is so overwhelming as to be almost forbidding. If you will um, look at Romans, the first chapter, you will see that in connection with creation, there is also the use of things visible to reveal, so far as it's possible to know, things unseen. Romans 1 verse 19, because that which may be known of God, now notice the limitation. It doesn't say everything about God could be known by studying botany and uh, zoology and all the other sciences, but it says that which may be known of God is manifest in them. And then it adds a reason why. If you don't believe it, it says here, for God has showed it to them. God has actually used creation to point out these things. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. The invisible things are made clear by looking at the works of his hands, realising his wisdom, understanding something of the pulsating purpose in things made, so that it may lead us to the things which are not made, those things were not made by hands which are eternal. Well then, I'm leaving the references in 1 Timothy, because I want to come back to that when we get through part of the way of this study. I'm still pursuing this question uh, as to no man has seen God at any time. Will you turn with me to the book of Exodus? Chapter 24. The book of Exodus, chapter 24. Verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Verse 11. Also they saw God, and did eat and drink. Well, it's there, it says so. So we could lift these two verses out and put them one against the other and say it's a contradiction, and shut the book and go home. No man has seen God at any time, says the book. They saw the God of Israel, says the book. Well, there must be some answer. Otherwise, we're without guide or compass. Will you look at um, Genesis 32, verse 30, and keep Exodus open because we shall compare. Genesis 32, verse 30. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. Now Exodus 33. 20. Exodus 33. 20. And he said, Thou canst not see my face. For there shall no man see me and live. Well, so we go on. One passage says they see his face. Another passage says they cannot. And then you remember it is said concerning Moses. Let's get, I think, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, to get these apparent contradictions all looped together. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, and there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, 
whom the Lord knew face to face. And then with that one, we'll look at the book of Numbers, chapter 12. The book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, we go back a little bit in verse 6. And he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. But my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. So now we've got the expression mouth to mouth. And I think if you turn back We'll keep this, we're coming back again to the same book, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 8, 89. Chapter 7, 89. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat, that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spake unto him. He spake unto him. God spoke unto Moses. Moses spoke unto God. He spoke face to face. He spoke mouth to mouth. And yet no man hath seen God at any time. Well, I didn't finish this verse, did I? Numbers 12. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the civilitude of the Lord shall he behold. Now that puts its finger on the answer. The similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Now they were warned that they saw no similitude in the giving of the Lord Sinai, and they were forbidden by the Lord to make a similitude of God. Do you see the real object of idolatry? It's to usurp the place of Christ. Why? Why? Because it's a right thing for a worshipper to have an image. Oh, you say, how's that? Well, you can't worship nothing. You can't worship an abstraction. You've never seen anybody fall down on their knees and worship the multiplication table. You see, Christ is the similitude, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And every idol that's ever been made is pushing Christ out of his legitimate place and putting a false one instead. It's really true that you and I cannot worship God that we cannot see, we cannot hear, we cannot touch. It's just, just like shutting your eyes and trying to think about nothing. So Moses spoke face to face and mouth to mouth with him who is revealed in the New Testament, as the image of the invisible God. He's revealed in the epistle to the Hebrews as the express image of his person. That is to say we have God coming down in the likeness of a man, otherwise man would have never had any contact with a living God. There would have been an impassable gulf and there should, would have been no possibility either of redemption or fellowship or walk with God or witness we depend upon the fact that as we couldn't climb up, God himself in his grace condescended to come down. 
And you know the magnificent passage in Philippians chapter 2 when it says it wasn't a thing that he grasped at to be on equality with God, but he emptied himself and he stooped down and at last stooped lower than even his servant Paul could. He stooped to the death of the cross. Oh, but you say, I can't take this in. No wonder, I can't either. But I can stand and read it and I can see this exhibition of the only way in which it's possible for man to get to know God is for God to come down, not for man to climb up. You see, the general movement is that the Bible is the record of the groping after God by man in those dim distant ages and he gradually crawls up and crawls up and crawls up and we're getting a little bit more knowledge now. That isn't the truth. No man by searching can find out God. It's only what God has revealed about himself in the Bible that we can begin to understand. And what he hasn't said is blank to us. We cannot assume it. Well now, I think perhaps it's time to begin to think about this first of Timothy. But there is another passage, one verse, that I would like you to ponder. I don't think I'll be very dogmatic or emphatic about it. Uh, but I want you to look at Isaiah 43, verse 10. Now, I won't read that before. I want to read 44, verse 24. First. And you'll see the reason why presently. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things. Now, I want to stop there. I want you to notice that word formed. Is there the slightest possibility of forgetting or not understanding what it means. This is to do with the conception of a child, isn't it? Formed from the womb. Right, now then, we'll come back to Isaiah 43. And of course, I'll have to ask you to take it from me for the time being till you search and see that the same word formed is here. Verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Now, of course, I may say, oh, that means, of course, idolatry. That means that uh, before me... But has there been no idols made after this? This says that before me there was no God formed and neither shall there be after me. So if you're going to say it's idolatry, you say from that moment when that was written, there's never been an idol made since, which of course is absolutely untrue. Here's a challenging verse that comes comparable to that other difficult one in John. The only begotten God. A God that's formed, as the word means, by conception in the womb. Now, have I, have I invented something, or is it in your book? Well, you say, I, I think it might be, because you've said so, and I believe you're telling the truth as far as you see it. You may be mistaken. Well, friends, will you, will you ponder this? Will you ask yourself whether you're opposing what might be the most marvellous revelation that this Bible contains? And that is embedded in 1 Timothy, chapter 3, when it says, confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. Well, as we cannot go on and on and on, 
I think it's time we turn to the first epistle of Timothy because that is going to be the crucial point for us this evening. The first of Timothy. I have demonstrated uh, by this chart which is before you the way in which this epistle is so worded that you have in chapter 1 these words. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Chapter 1. And in chapter 6 you have the king of kings, the lord of lords, immortal and invisible. You see, like that. And then in the middle, God, who was invisible and immortal. God was manifest in the flesh. Seen of angels. You see. In contrast to being invisible, seen. Well now let's see that it does actually focus our attention like that. You will notice how it starts. A salutation in grace and then a very obvious salutation in grace at the other end. We'll take that for granted. Except I will draw your attention to one little thing. In the first verse of Timothy, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Saviour. And you'll find in the epistle of Titus he uses the word commandment again. But usually Paul says he was a, a, an apostle by the will of God. But don't you see, this is all on all fours what they're trying to say. How do you know the will of God? Well, unless he tells you something, you don't know, do you? So he's buried the will of God by the commandment of God that expresses his will. You see, if you had an ordinary person, if you could tie them to a chair, bind them hand and foot, if you could plaster their mouth, if you could make it impossible to turn them bat an eyelid or move an eyebrow, what would you know about them? Just simply nothing. And that person like that couldn't will anything. They might in their own mind wish to do something, but could they, they couldn't accomplish anything. They couldn't tell anybody to do anything. They couldn't move it themselves. They couldn't even indicate by a change of their complexion. You see? So that, you see, the, the, the commandment of God is only a way of saying the same thing. The will of God's invisible. It's the word of God and the commandment of God that makes it manifest and intelligible. But that's by the way. Well, then we see a word which looks, oh, probably portmanteau word as it's called, it's a compound. Heteros is our word, heterodox. Something which is contrary to the accepted teaching. Didascalio is the word to do with doctrine. And you'll see that the warning in this first chapter is concerning teaching other doctrine. We read it ourselves and I won't go over all the verses. But if you run your eye down to the same letter B, chapter 6, you'll see that starts in the same way. Chapter 6, verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ enter the doctrine which is according to godliness. There's this emphasis once again on the contrary doctrine. It comes out in both chapters. We come back again because I'm not so much concerned with every feature in this Timothy as to get the beginning, the end and the middle. Uh, but you will see that there is a parallel in the analysis of the section. There's a dispensation of God. There are endless genealogies 
and there is a charge concerning God who is invisible and immortal. And then we come further down here and we have a charge, once more repeated, God invisible, immortal. And the good deposit, the vain babblings in contrast and something entrusted. We've got a, uh, something parallel in both cases. And then we have a statement in chapter 2, he's the saviour of all men. And there it is, like kings and all that are in authority. And in this next occurrence, chapter 4, verse 9 onwards, it says, he is the saviour of all men. Verse 10, especially of those that believe. Well, if he's the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe, the other salvation must be a lower platform, a different type of deliverance. But that's again, he's by the way. And then that brings us, oh, we might as well look at the next member, D. We get an emphasis upon the ministry of men, of women, and a reference to Adam and Eve. And we have, I hope to come shortly. And then in the balancing one, under the letter D in chapter 4, 5 and 6, it says, Till I come, give attention to the ministry of men and women and elders and widows. Well, now that leads us to these three passages. I'd like to read them, although we've read them already together, read them again. He stops in chapter 1, verse 17 to say this, a doxology. And now... Unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. You notice the three things he says there. Eternal, immortal, invisible. And he is the only wise God. A doxology. At the end of the epistle, he bursts out again with a doxology. Verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So no possible doubt to know, as to who he's speaking about. The appearing, the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Well now is there any need for me to turn to the book of the Revelation and tell you that the second coming of Christ he comes with that title when he appears. He's seen riding out of heaven on a white horse and his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's called the Word of God. So this one we're reading about now is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well what about the other king we read just now in chapter 1? The King eternal, immortal, invisible. Ah, but you say, of course Christ was not invisible. Oh, we must read on. First of all, who only hath immortality. You see, in the first chapter, there are two words translated immortal. There's one word used in chapter 1, the other word is used in chapter 6. Isn't it a staggering thought, friends, for a moment to stop and think? There's only one person in the whole of God's universe at this present moment who has immortality. And then the next thing is, there is no need for you to go out to prove that God himself, God himself is immortal, I mean, it goes without saying, doesn't it? There's no need to try to prove that. And it's a, it's a negative. The word I am in front means not. If you're going to put down all the things that God is not, when are you going to finish? There's no need. 
But any person who's been subjected to death, he's immortal. See, God himself, the invisible God's never been subjected to death. In order that there may be an offering that will be acceptable. You remember Hebrews says, A body hast thou prepared me, somebody said in the glory. A body hast thou prepared me. Lo, I come. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now he died. And he, was rose, he rose again. And he's the first one and the only one at the present moment who hath immortality. And you will never get it and I will never get it unless we're joined together with him. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Well now, we'll go on. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Oh yes, I can understand that now because even Saul of Tarsus was blinded for three days. But we shall approach to it. Will you friends? Let's read on. Which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen or can see. No one has yet seen this King of kings and Lord of lords, and he dwells in unapproachable light, and nobody will ever enter it. If you'll read John 17, you'll find there are two aspects of his glory. He says, the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And then he says, the glory which thou hast given me because of my redemptive work, which I can share with my disciples. We'll never share this unapproachable glory of Christ. It's never held out to us. So you see, once more we've got to be so careful we use things relative to their teaching and not twist them over. Well now then, we've got the beginning and the end of the story. God invisible. Even Christ himself who is king of kings is invisible. No man hath seen or can see. He veiled his glory when he was here. They never saw it. They got a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a favoured few, that's all. The generality was they said they saw no beauty in him that they should desire him. That was for our sakes. Now we'll look at the chapter 3 then which brings this to a focus. In chapter 3 he's been speaking about the office of a bishop and then the office of a deacon and he's dealing with a church in the house. Verse 15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I don't know whether you feel a bit uneasy about this, but do you believe that any church that meets in anybody's house at any time is the pillar and ground of truth? You would, perhaps, if you believed in the Roman Catholic position, for the church is almost everything there. Because this was a church in which there could be appointed a bishop and a deacon. So it was a limited local church, and this reads as though that church was the pillar and ground of truth. Well, you may say to me, well, take a dose of your own medicine, it says so. Ah, but friends, does it say so? Supposing we go back again, and if you use the Diaglot version... And again I'm using a version which says a God in John's Gospel, so they're contrary to what I understand and believe. Nevertheless, they can't help themselves. Truth is truth, truth, whoever utters it. This is what you read. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, full stop. 
I'm going to start something else now. A pillar and ground of truth and confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. Oh yes. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is neither Peter, nor Paul, nor the church, nor any assembly of God's people in heaven or earth. The pillar and ground of truth and admittedly great is the mystery of godliness. And what is it? God was manifest in the flesh. Now there's been a great controversy over the question, should it read God? Should it read who? Should it read which? And the controversy turns on a little thin line. I don't know whether you've seen the original manuscripts which are in the British Museum. The one over which the controversy arose was the Alexandrian. And if you see it, the ink is a lovely golden brown colour. But if you look at the words, you'll find that any amount of them, where a thin line ought to be, is not there. Now why they should pick on one, because it served their purpose and make a to-do about it, because in the very self-same verse, the epsilon, the letter E, There's four or five of them all together. And not one of them has got the middle bar in it. Now, you say now. Yes, because the last thing that's been done is not to look at it through a magnifying glass, but to use the more modern method of photography. And the photography has brought back every stroke that's invisible to the human eye now. And the Alexandrian manuscript says the same as all the rest. It's not who and it's not what, it's God. Theos. God was manifest in the flesh. Now that is a that is a, a mystery, isn't it? Everybody starts buttoning on a poor speaker who said it and said, Well now explain it to me. I said, I'd rather bow my head. I'd rather stand with those cherubim who with train he covered his face, and with train he covered his feet, and with train he did fly. And they said, holy, holy, holy. And who were they speaking about? They saw a king, high and lifted up, in the temple. And John says that when Isaiah spoke of him, he spoke of Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Goes on to use terms that may be difficult for us to put together in their right order. Justified in the spirit well, you get a little hint of that if you'll turn to Romans, the first chapter. The apostle writing concerning the gospel entrusted to him and his apostleship. Romans, the first chapter. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, no person in his senses would ever write my biography and say, Charles H. Wells was made according to the flesh. So what else was he? He may have thought a good bit about himself, but you 
can say nothing like that about me or any man living, that he was made according to the flesh because there's no other way in which he could come. But this one is different because it says he was made according to the flesh of the seed of David, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, justified in spirit, justified all the claims that he made against men who took up stones and said he was a blasphemer. God endorsed everything that Christ ever said about himself, as well as what he said about sin and redemption. Justified in spirit. And then, if you look at this same chapter, Romans 1, verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. You notice he gets a little... Uh, it's very characteristic of rabbinical writings to have doxologies coming in just like that. Well, that's, that's fine. Nobody's going to stumble over that, are they? But you turn to chapter 9 and see the peculiar advantage which he gives to the people of Israel. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, verse 3, on verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And of whom as concerning the flesh, is back again, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. And who's he? Who is over all. God. Blessed forever. And this text has been put on the rack, the same as they did in the Middle Ages, the poor Christians. And it's been twisted and distorted and says the same thing. You can't stop it. Twice, you see. He uses this method of coming out with a sort of hallelujah. Amen. According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God. Blessed forever. And if you turn to the last page in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 22. First of all, we notice this claim in verse 13, which we may have to look at later. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And if you know your prophet Isaiah, you know that someone there says, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. What's Christ doing then when he says that about himself? You see, it gets perilously near. He's blasphemer, or else he's wonderfully, marvelously, gloriously true. And then see again in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Well now again, we're up against something which does not make sense. No ordinary person can ever be his own ancestor. What does Christ mean when he says, I am the root and offspring of David? We know he's the son of David. But just as it was with regard to Abraham, he's the son of Abraham. But he turned round and he said, before Abraham became into being, I am. And they understood what he meant because it says they took up stones to stone him. Well, once again, we've ventilated this question. No man has seen God at any time. Moses saw him face to face, mouth to mouth, but the image or the similitude of God he did behold. And Jehovah once 
stood there and Abraham bowed before him and he said, Oh Lord, if there are fifty righteous men in Sodom, wilt thou destroy it? He said, No, I'll spare it. Oh Lord, I'm only dust and ashes, but supposing there are only forty-five, you know, he went on. And that Lord, whose name is Jehovah, before whom Abraham bowed, had sat in Abraham's tent and allowed him to wash his feet and he gave him something to eat. That's Jehovah in the book of Genesis. And then you get a puzzle for anybody who likes them. Here's one for you to solve. And that Jehovah rained down fire and brimstone from Jehovah out of heaven. When you start telling me what God can do and what Christ cannot do, solve that one first. It's in the first book of the Bible. Jehovah on earth rains down from Jehovah in heaven, fire and brimstone on Sodom. And it's not my Bible, it's your Bible. All our Bibles say the same thing. Shall we not rather say, you know, I think we better accept it. Confessively great is the mystery of godliness. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let us rather confess that we would, we will rather say what he said and use the words that he uses even though they are beyond our comprehension, then we'll take one single passage out of this book and distort it and twist it or use a blind eye with regard to it because we cannot intelligently explain it to other people. Here is the one great point that God has met our utmost need by this great act of personal condescension. He has come down in the likeness of men, as those men said when they saw Barnabas and Paul. They, they said it ignorantly. We say it intelligently. And may we be very grateful that like the Good Samaritan, the Saviour was speaking out of a, a heart that knew what it was going to cost him. He said the priest and the Levite, they looked on and they passed by on the other side. But the Good Samaritan came where he was. And I shall one day ascend and be in glory because he one day laid aside his glory and descended to the lower parts that is to say the earth and that one has been set before me as my saviour and my lord and that subject will have to take up I hope God willing next time I'll throw the question at you this evening and you can ponder it there's one lord in the old testament and there's one Lord in the New Testament. Are there two one Lords? You see, we've got problems again. But may the Lord give us grace to search and see, and when we see, at least to believe.